listeners, and, and welcome to another episode of Yas Queen's History Podcast. I'm your host, Emily. This is our fourth episode on Eleanor of Provence and her three sisters, all of whom would be queens. We left off in our last episode with Marguerite and Beatrice, the eldest and the youngest of the four sisters, departing on crusade. This episode is going to be fairly Marguerite and Beatrice heavy, but I'll check in on Eleanor and Sanchia here and there as well. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that I usually make fun of how often crusades come up during this time period, but also avoid trying to talk about them. Um, Delving into a crusade is unavoidable for this episode, since two of our four main characters are going to go on one, and it's going to be quite the journey. I've avoided it for as long as I could, but it is time to talk about crusading. We're going to be talking mostly about Beatrice of Provence, the daughter, and not Beatrice of Savoy, the mother in this episode. So I'm just going to call her Beatrice and not BP like in the previous episode where both Beatrices were coming up. We'll have a few mentions of Beatrice of Savoy at the beginning, but it's mostly going to be Beatrice of Provence. Things have been tense between Marguerite and Beatrice since Beatrice had married Charles of Anjou, the youngest brother of Louis, Marguerite's husband. Marguerite didn't like Charles. She felt like he was needy, demanding, and trying to compete with Louis whenever possible. Going on crusade meant the two sisters would be in close proximity, though, and on public display. So Marguerite had to put her differences aside with her younger sister and put on a happy face. The French royal family needed to give off the appearance of unity, not division, as they embarked on crusade. Nobody wants to invest in an angry family road trip, basically. <laughs> Their first stop along the way was in Provence, so Charles and BP could try to reconcile with Beatrice of Savoy. Mama Beatrice was still mad at Charles for trying to take power in Provence away from her. They then journeyed on to Cyprus, arriving in mid-September 1248. Along with Louis and Charles was their brother, Robert of Artois, and they would later be joined by their fourth and final living brother, Alphonse, Count of Poitiers. Blanche of Castile had had 14 children, like Isabel of Angouillem, but she did not have Isabella's astounding track record. While all of Isabella's 14 children had survived until adulthood, Blanche had lost more than half of her children as infants or in early childhood. Those that made it to adulthood were Louis, Al Louis, Robert, Alphonse, Isabel, and Charles. As a quick side note, Raymond of Toulouse, a former lifelong nemesis of the Provençal sister's father, and attempted husband of both Sancia and Beatrice, had promised to join the crusade, but died before he had the chance to go. Timing is really not Raymond's friend at any point in his life. He's always waiting on something, or something doesn't come soon enough. Uh, in this case, he did not get to go on crusade before he died. We bid you farewell, Raymond. The crusaders spent some time in Cyprus, first waiting on the rest of their army to catch up and assemble there, and then they needed to wait out the winter, so while they arrived in September, they wouldn't leave until the spring of the following year. In the meantime, Beatrice gave birth to her first child, a son named Louis. The first thing you need to know about this crusade was that Louis was extremely committed to it. We'll see later he was a little too committed to his own personal detriment as well as to the detriment of the, his entire kingdom. Louis was so excited and anxious to lead his troops personally into battle that when he heard that another ship had landed before his own had reached the shore, he jumped ship into neck-deep water, holding his standard up above his head because he had to be the first, you guys. I'm picturing walking multiple dogs and how each of them needs to be the head of the pack. 
that's Louis. Also, I'm assuming he did not have armor on when he jumped off the ship. Otherwise, you would think that would have... Uh, I mean, I guess it was neck deep water. He would have been able to stand. But still, that seems like a bad idea. <laughs> Louis was initially super successful on Crusade. He captured the port city of Damietta in northeast Egypt in the course of a single morning, claiming it for France and for the church. I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about battles on the Crusade because A, that's not my area of interest or expertise, and B, we've got too much to cover to spend that long on single battles. So quick battle, yay Louis. They spent some time in Damietta as the Nile flooded and they were unable to continue onwards, but eventually the army would ride out on November 20th, 1249. Louis left Marguerite, Beatrice, and the other noble wives behind in the city. Along with them were 500 soldiers and the Duke of Burgundy, who was entrusted with guarding the city. Marguerite and Beatrice were both pregnant at this time, which was part of why they were left behind. This is going to end up being the best thing that could have happened to them, honestly, so... Don't, don't feel bad that they were left behind. Domietta had belonged to the Sultan of Cairo, who fell into a coma the day the Crusaders left Domietta and died four days later. I'm bringing this up because this is going to create a struggle for power in the area and also brings in another strong female leader. When the Sultan died, his sons were not with him at the time and able to quickly step in and take the role. Um, they were off elsewhere in the kingdom. It was going to take a little while before they got there. But they would need a leader immediately, so the sultan's favorite wife stepped in, Shahar Aldur, whose name means Tree of Pearls. Shahar was Armenian and had been a slave when she captured the sultan's eye during a battle. She quickly showed immense talent at statescraft. Shahar gathered the immediate family and servants in her dead husband's tent, swore them to secrecy that he had died, and kept his death a secret for as long as possible until a more formalized plan could be constructed. This would help buy time until the sultan's son and heir, Turan Shah, could return from his trip north. After the defeat at Damietta, the sultan had offered Louis Jerusalem in exchange for Damietta, which Louis had then refused, expecting he'd be able to take more cities on his own and didn't need to trade his first conquered city for another. Although it was Jerusalem he was being offered. Maybe I'm wrong, but I thought the whole point of crusades was partially to take Jerusalem? I don't know. Again, religious history, not my forte. Anyways, this rejected deal will come back up later. The Crusaders moved on to Mount Surah, where they were stopped by a river. I could probably spend hours on this crusade breaking everything down, but I don't want to. So we're going to go through, uh, we're going to go quickly through some of it and hopefully it will all make sense. The French forces split up at this point. While this is going on, Marguerite and Beatrice are still back in Damietta. They had lost communication with the main part of the French forces because of the enemy blockade of the Nile, so they were in the dark about what was going on. They were hoping for the best, but after months with no news, they were beginning to worry. To add to the high-stakes tension, Marguerite is heavily pregnant at this point. The Egyptian army would arrive in Damietta three days before she was supposed to give birth. It's my opinion that Marguerite was the strongest of the four sisters. We'll see her keep a level head time and time again, but she's really being put through the ringer now. She's heavily pregnant in a foreign land, hasn't heard from her husband for months, and now there's an invading army knocking at her door. She has many reasons to panic and lose her cool, but no, Marguerite endures. 
she was determined to not be taken prisoner by the Egyptian army, or Saracens as they were called. She kept an older knight by her bedside for protection, even while she was giving birth, and told him, If the Saracens take the city, you will cut off my head before they can take me. Like, can you imagine telling someone this as you're giving birth? Well, just having to worry about these things while you're giving birth. Moment of appreciation for Marguerite and her, you'll never take me alive, energy. Marguerite would save the French hold on the city of Damiana. As a reminder, Louis had left the Duke of Burgundy with her, who was supposed to be the knight in charge of the city, but the Duke was panicking and useless. Marguerite took charge and, through negotiating and a hefty payment of 360,000 livres, kept her hold on the city. Losing Damietta would have absolutely ruined what was left of Louis's crusade, and she would not have that, so she saved the city for him. Meanwhile, Louis is still a hostage. Taranshaw Shah had initially wanted to humiliate Louis by making him travel around Egypt in chains, the humiliation tour. He'd also considered just going ahead and beheading Louis, but ultimately decided not to, knowing there would be repercussions. While France wasn't prepared to rally if this happened, it would not sit well with the European countries, obviously, who might then join in on the crusade to get revenge for Louis's death. Even if they hadn't supported him, still, you know, beheading the French king, not cool. Turan Shah decided he'd have more opportunities for negotiations if he kept Louis alive, and his own doctors, um, and he even had his own doctors take care of presumably still poopy Louis. In exchange for the royal hostages, Turan Shah set a ransom of a million gold bazants, which was equal to 500 gold livres and the return of Damietta. My sources keep bouncing around with the different currencies, of course, since we have different countries, um, so it was it's kind of hard to keep track of the exchange rates going from, you know, pounds to livre to now we've got bazants and other other units have been thrown in here and there as well. Um, so it's hard to know what the amounts meant at that time, just because we're going from currency to currency so much. But given that saving Damietta cost Marguerite 360,000 livres, uh, presumably also gold livres, I don't know if they had a distinction between the two at the time, um, 500 for her husband, his brothers, and the army doesn't sound like that much in comparison. I guess the greater cost of the French was surre was surrendering Damietta, not the monetary cost, but still, that doesn't seem like enough for this ransom, honestly. Uh, Louis was on board with this idea. While he doesn't want to lose Damietta, he also doesn't want to be a prisoner forever, but it's ultimately up to Marguerite to decide if she'll take this offer and how she will go about getting the money for it. Before negotiations can begin, that third faction, the Mamluks, that we mentioned briefly earlier, they were the ones who killed Robert of Artois and a third of the French army, um, so they have returned now to the scene and are going to create more drama. In case you're wondering who the Mamluks are, they were a group of enslaved mercenaries, slave soldiers, and freed slaves. Originally, the group was Turkish, but they'd grown to include people from the Balkans, as well as other countries like modern-day Georgia, Armenia, Russia, and Hungary. The Mamluks set fire to Turan Shah's lodging to flush him out, then were waiting outside, and then chased him to the Nile before assassinating him. Turan Shah had not been a popular leader, his father had been better liked. This left a power vacuum again, with a really cool resolution. 
Remember Shahar Aldur, the former slave who had been the previous sultan's favorite wife? The one who had already proven her merit as a leader? Well, she gets to shine again. Shahar is declared sultan now that Tehran Shah is dead, which was an unprecedented event in the Muslim world. Not only was she a female sultan, but a female sultan who had formerly been a slave? Love that for her. Actual rags to riches journey. Truly. To make peace between the sultanate and the Mamluks, it was decided that the head of the Mamluks would marry Shahar. This is, of course, a go-to way to resolve tension, have the head of one faction marry the head of the other. Now they have to be allied because they're married. Of course, this meant that Shahar was going to have to share her power, but still, I'm going to call this a win for her and a win for women. Our deal is struck between the sultanate and the French. France needs his king back, and Marguerite is done with this crusading nonsense. She's ready to pay to get her husband back and bring him home. Keep in mind, she's recently given birth to a son they'd name Jean Tristan. Louis and his brothers are released, and everyone regroups together at Accra, where Marguerite and Louis are reunited. This ordeal has made Marguerite stronger, but Louis is broken. It's quickly evident that he is now a shell of the man he once was. Louis is racked with guilt for the deaths of so many of his men and the failure of his crusade. A divide will emerge and grow between Louis and Marguerite and his brothers and their wives. While Louis is a depressed mess over everything that's happened, his brothers quickly balance back to normal now that they are free from captivity. Beatrice and Marguerite have been united and grown together during their months together without their husbands, having had to rely on each other for emotional support, but each will side with their respective husbands. Marguerite is infuriated when she sees her brothers-in-law casually gambling on board a ship, showing just how cavalier they were about everything that had happened. Now, everyone assumed that after suffering this massive, humiliating defeat, Louis would throw in the towel and give up on his crusade. That would have been the logical thing to do, right? Well, Louis isn't logical at this point. He feels an overwhelming need to redeem himself by not giving up and continuing to fight. Of course, since this is a crusade, I'm sure he felt like his soul was on the line here. He's ready to get back out there. Everyone else is like, dude, no. Louis is the only one who believes in this at this point. Marguerite is not enthusiastic. She'd expected Louis to be ready to go back home, but she will support her husband, even if he is being a complete idiot. Louis at least gives everyone the opportunity to decide if they want to stay or if they want to go home. Unsurprisingly, almost no one decides to stay with him. Charles and Alphonse, his own brothers, are like, are both like, boy, bye, and pack up to leave with their wives. There's no family loyalty here, although I can't blame them. Giving up was the smart thing to do, especially if you had any sense of self-preservation. Louis is the DW from Arthur meme of, that sign can't stop me because I can't read. If he had a sense of self-preservation, he probably would have given up, but at this point, he does not. Well, Marguerite has to realize that everyone else is making the smart decision here. Her blood is still boiling. She has to watch her sister and in-laws, as well as the other nobles, sail away, leaving her in Accra with minimal resources and companionship. This seems like a good place to leave Marguerite for now, at least in narrative terms, since Marguerite herself was in a bad place at that point. We'll leave Marguerite and Beatrice there for now and get caught up with what was going on with Eleanor and Sancia during this time. 
Things had not been great for England in terms of competing on the world stage. The country had suffered a number of setbacks when it came to their interests abroad and extended kingdom. Eleanor was determined to change this, and she knew that she needed allies if that was going to change. She encouraged friends and relatives from Provence and Savoy to move to England, and they jumped at the opportunity, knowing that as queen, she had the power to ensure they ended up with power. Those in her inner circle, or related to those in her inner circle, had been set up with very advantageous marriages. Eleanor was trying to give the existing English aristocracy less power by replacing them or connecting them to her Provençal and Savoyard family and friends. Things were also not going well with Henry and his brother-in-law, Simon de Montfort. At Eleanor's persuading, Simon had been made the Seneschal of Gascony, but the region had been in conflict ever since. Simon might not have been the right man for the job in terms of leadership, but this was still a power play by Eleanor. If it hadn't been Simon, it would have been Richard of Cornwall, Henry's younger brother and the husband of Sancia. While Richard's leadership style likely would have worked better in Gascony, Eleanor saw him as being a greater threat to Henry than Simon was. Richard was extremely wealthy and influential. Simon was influential, but he was perpetually in need of money. Richard was well regarded throughout Europe, and he had risen up against his brother in the past. Giving him more power by putting him in charge of Gascony was not a move that Eleanor wanted to make. Within two years of Simon having the position, Henry was already growing frustrated, feeling like he was spending large amounts of money on Gascony and not getting any return on his investment. It was all risk and no reward. Simon kept reassuring Henry that he was on the right track and change would come, but Henry felt like there was no end in sight when it came to the cost of defending Gascony. The two Eleanors, Eleanor of Provence and Eleanor de Montfort, worked to calm Henry down, but even the two of them together were unable to change his mind. The position was supposed to last for five years, but Simon was required to return to England only four years into the contract. The barons of Gascony, supported by the king, were making Simon stand trial on charges of inhumane treatment and extortion. Henry had once called Simon his beloved and faithful brother-in-law before he took charge of Gascony, but was now addressing him simply as the Earl of Leicester. In 1252, Simon would resign, and but got paid out 7,000 marks for this. Ah, marks, that was the other form of currency I was trying to think of before. Gascony then went to Henry and Eleanor's heir, Edward, and Simon left for Paris, where he felt he would be better respected than he would be in England. Let's talk about Edward for a moment. Edward is in his early teenage years at this point, but he's already giving signs that he's going to be a great king one day, and potentially a better statesman and warrior than his father. Henry had never been particularly interested in sports. He was more interested in the arts and literature, but Edward would love tournaments and hunting, common interests he would share with his future wife, who we will be talking about before the end of this episode. We haven't talked much about Sanchia since her wedding, so let's give her a moment. Sanchia was getting caught up in the middle between her husband and her sister. Sanchia was not someone who liked being caught up in the conflict or drama. She preferred to be in the background than in the center of things like her other sisters did. This would become a point of tension in her marriage with Richard. Sanchia was also the only one of the four sisters who married a man who had been previously married. As a reminder, Richard of Cornwall had been previously married to the deceased Isabella Marshall. Being a marshal, Isabella had grown up in the center of English politics, 
being part of one of the most powerful families of the time. She was well aware of existing loyalties and the order of things, which had made her a great partner for Richard. He did view her as more of a true partner in terms of politics and in marriage, and deferred to her opinions. Sancia, on the other hand, was foreign-born and neither familiar with nor particularly interested in English politics. She was the complete opposite of Isabella in many ways, which might have been refreshing to some people, but Richard saw those differences as weaknesses and inadequacies. Sancia had caught his eye with her looks, but her lack of interest or talent in the things he valued meant that his interest and affection for her faded. At least she was able to spend a good amount of time at her sister's court. While Marguerite and Beatrice feuded in France, Eleanor and Sancia generally remained close. This also shows how uninterested in politics and power grab Sancia was, as Eleanor did not like to share her own power. The fact that she kept her sister so close shows that she didn't see Sancia as a threat. Her sister was a companion, not competition. England needed its coins to be reminted, an expensive and lengthy process that Henry didn't have the money for. It needed to be done, but he could not afford to do it. So he turned to Richard and asked him to be in charge of the project, in exchange for a substantial profit to make it worth Richard's while. Again, Richard, always very well off. For 12 years, Richard would take three pence from every pound in England, and starting in 1251, he would do the same in Ireland for another 12-year contract as well. Richard had always been financially well-off, but obviously this only made him wealthier. Sancia's first son, also named Richard, had died within weeks, but she had her second and surviving son, Edmund, in 1249. She likely hoped that the birth of this son would get Richard to pay more attention to her, but that wasn't the case. He stayed close to his only surviving child from his first marriage, Henry. We've talked about Henry before, briefly. Um, he's going to continue to be of note as he's going to get into some shenanigans later on. Change is going to come for Sancia and Richard, but a different kind of change than improved marital relations. On December 13th, 1250, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II died of dysentery. The Pope, Innocent IV, was overjoyed. Raymond Berenger and Raymond of Toulouse's rivalry was nothing compared to that of the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor. Frederick was the person that Innocent hated the most in the world. Innocent IV had once conspired with Frederick's personal physician to have Frederick poisoned. The scheme was found out and the physician was caught, but, like, these two were at poison plot level hatred, since we don't see that all that often. Frederick had two adult sons, Conrad and Manfred, so the succession was secured, but Innocent IV would not be stopped. He wanted to somehow split the empire into two separate kingdoms, Germany and Sicily. He hoped to allow Conrad to inherit one, while the crown for Sicily would be offered up to a third party who would be supportive of the Pope and his schemes, so kind of breaking up the monopoly. He saw two candidates for this, two younger brothers of kings, Richard of Cornwall and Charles of Anjou. Charles and crew had gone to Frederick II's court after leaving Louis and Marguerite behind in Acre. They had been tasked by Louis with recruiting an army to come support Louis's crusade endeavors and help get him out of Egypt with his head st held still at least somewhat high. The French royals had begged Frederick II to send an army, but Frederick had declined on the grounds that he needed every soldier he had so that he could fight the Pope. While this plan had failed, Charles was obligated to at least giving off the appearance of trying to help Louis with his crusade, so when Innocent IV offered him Sicily, he had to decline. 
Louis was supposed to be Charles's priority, and he also didn't have the money to go after Sicily. You know who did have the money? Super rich Richard of Cornwall. Richard had probably been Innocent's first choice for the job from the start. He's got a longer track record of foreign diplomacy. Um, he's done a lot more than Charles of Anjou has at this time. But he'd at least made, Innocent had at least made the offer to Charles that he could say that he had. Richard also declined the offer, but we're going to come back to this talk about Germany and Sicily in the next episode. Our final topic of discussion for this episode will be checking in on the English royal family again. Henry and Eleanor had planned on going on crusade before things became too complicated politically at home, and they realized they couldn't leave. When they had been planning on going on crusade, they recognized that they would likely be gone for years, so, so they decided to push forward the marriage between their daughter, Princess Margaret, and Alexander III of Scotland, a match made by the peace treaty between Scotland and England back in 1244. Princess Margaret would be the first of Eleanor's children to be married. Prince Edward, the heir, was older than his sister Margaret, but he wouldn't get married until 1254. Margaret was 11 years old and Alexander was 10, so both were still very young to be getting officially married, but at least they were almost the same age. Margaret and Alexander married on Christmas Day in 1251 in York, where they'd stay for several weeks before Margaret began her life in Scotland. Margaret struggled with this adjustment. She actually liked her new husband and wanted to spend time with him, but because they were still children and weren't expected to begin bedroom activities together, they were generally kept apart. Margaret was cold, bored, and lonely. I respect the commitment to preventing pregnancy since she was so young, but I feel like they still could have spent time together, you know, during the daytime, so they had the chance to get to know each other better and build a relationship before children of their own entered the scene. It seems weird to be like, just because we don't want you to get pregnant, we're going to make sure you guys never see each other. Also, she was 11. Like, had she actually started to have her period yet? Great question. While relations between Henry and Simon de Montfort were frayed, the two Eleanors were still go on good terms. When Eleanor de Montfort's sixth child and fifth son, because she had a whole lot of sons, was born in 1252, Eleanor of Provence would send one of her own nurses to care for her sister-in-law. Eleanor of Provence and Henry would have their own conflict during this year. Henry was already mad at Eleanor for her support of Simon, and the relationship would be further frayed when they fought over um, each of them trying to appoint when they fought over each of them trying to appoint their own candidate for a role within the church. On November 4th, 1252, Henry would seize custody of Eleanor's lands and income and basically put her into time out to think about her actions. While this was the biggest fight they had had up until this point, their relationship recovered from it, and Henry would return Eleanor's lands to her after a matter of weeks. By the spring of the following year, Eleanor was reported to be pregnant, so clearly Henry didn't stay mad at her for too long. The couple were slightly worried about this pregnancy. Eleanor had had four children in under six years, but it had now been eight years since she'd had Edmund, her fourth and youngest child. Still, Eleanor was only 30 years old at this point, and her mother-in-law, Isabel of Angouillem, had been having children into her 40s. Isabel had also had plenty of gaps between her children, um, like Eleanor did now. While Eleanor was pregnant, Henry would decide to leave for Gascony. As proof that the two had fully reconciled, Henry wrote up an updated will which put Eleanor in charge of their children and all of Henry's territories until Edward reached adulthood. He certainly would not have done this if he didn't trust Eleanor. 
She rose to the occasion while Henry was gone, and even when she was supposed to be in her lying-in period after giving birth to her fifth and final child, Catherine, she was still attending to governmental affairs. Henry started thinking now about marriages for his other children. Before he left for Gascony, he'd already started communicating with the Castilian royal family. He wanted to form an alliance with them by marrying either Edward or Beatrice, their middle child, to a member of the Castilian royal family. Now, the English royal family does have a connection to the Castilian royal family, although it's getting a little distant at this point. We're not quite as directly inter interrelated. Castile's king at the time was Alfonso X, who had inherited the throne after the death of his father, Ferdinand III. Ferdinand III was the son of Berenguela, who you might remember from the, the Patreon episode about Eleanor of Aquitaine's English daughters. Our family tree here goes Eleanor of Aquitaine, her daughter Eleanor, who married the King of Castile, Alfonso VII. I guess we jumped through. We jumped through some Alfonsos here. Um, Eleanor and Alfonso VII had Berenguela, who married Alfonso IX of Leon, and had Ferdinand III. Ferdinand III had married twice and had children of note with both of his wives. His first wife was Elizabeth of Swabia, and they had ten children together, the eldest of which was Alfonso X, who again inherited Castile from Ferdinand. After Elizabeth's death, Ferdinand married Joan, Countess of Pontio, who had been one of Henry III's potential brides before Eleanor. Ferdinand and Joan had five children, the second of which was a daughter named Eleanor. Alfonso X had hoped that Eleanor of Castile, this Eleanor which spoke of, would marry Theobald II of Navarre, but when that fell through, he started talking to Henry III again. Before, Henry III had suggested that either um, Edward or Beatrice marry a Castilian, but now Alfonso wanted both of the English royal children to marry into the Castilian royal family. He wanted Edward endowed with lands worth £10,000 a year to have the honor of knighting Edward himself and for Henry to go crusading with him in North Africa. While Henry couldn't really afford these financial terms, he was still on board with the idea, even though he'd also hoped to knight Edward himself one day as a father-son bonding woman. Joan of Pontio came to visit the English royal family in August 1254. While she had once been Henry's intended bride, there was no bad blood between her, Henry, and Eleanor. That was all water under the bridge at this point, and the parents were more interested in seeing their children married to each other. Eleanor of Castile was two years younger than Edward, perfectly respectable. Her background was very similar to Eleanor of Provence's, as they had both grown up in courts that favored literature and romance, and based on their geographic locations, loved gardens and being out in the sunshine. The couple would marry in 1254. Pope Innocent IV hadn't given up on his plan to plant an ally of his as the new king of Sicily. Since Charles of Anjou and Richard of Cornwall were out, he now went to his third choice. Henry and Eleanor were known to be trying to set up their second son, Edmund, with the land inheritance, so it was decided that Edmund would become king of Sicily. Even though he still didn't really have the money to make this happen, Henry jumped at the idea. With that, I'm going to wrap up this episode here. We covered a lot of ground with all four sisters. In our next episode, part five of this mini-series on the four sisters, we'll find out how Louis' crusade comes to an end, Sisantia made a queen, a Provencal family reunion, and never-ending scheming. We're likely looking at six parts for the mini-series. I'm hopeful to get everything wrapped up in the next two episodes and to not need a seventh part. 
once we're done with this mini-series, it's on to talking about Eleanor of Castile and giving her her own episode. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode or this podcast in general, give us a review on your preferred listening platform. Reviews help other listeners find this podcast. The podcast is on Instagram at yasqueens.podcast, which is also linked in the episode description if you just want to click on the link. Until next time!